Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected. Subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say... You really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Hello there, welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. I'm Tom Marvin, technical editor at Bike Radar. Uh, and joining me today are two of my technical colleagues. Uh, first up, we've got Al Evans. He's another one of our tech heads and he's based up in Scotland. How are you getting on, Al? Yeah, all good, Tom. Uh, really loving this uh, take two on the uh, podcast. <laughs> Don't give away all our secrets, Al. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just glad to do it there because Tom was trying to cover our cover our tracks for uh, ineptitude, <laughs> initial ineptitude. <laughs> this originally started twenty minutes ago. And we we're only just starting recording now because, uh, yeah, technology isn't. Uh, we might be tech heads, but technology isn't our forte. You know, yeah. So, uh, yeah. On that note, I'm feeling feeling brilliant now. Feeling brilliant. <laughs> good, good, good. Uh, and also with us is Luke Marshall. He's one of our tech writers here at Bike Radar and MVUK Magazine. How are you getting on, Luke? Yeah, I'm doing all good, thanks. Just uh, entertaining myself watching you guys suss all this out. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Al, what are you up to at the moment? We've just wrapped up Bike of the Year. Um, so yeah, how's that been going for you? Well, how did it yeah, go? Because really you finished it. Yeah, finished. Everything's uh, everything's all wrapped up kind of on the, like I, like I said in, in take one, the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the post, post-body blues, the big come down after all of the, the soaring highs of bike testing and photos and videos and the whole lot. Um, but no, in, in seriousness, just on to the next thing, you know, yeah. where I uh, actually took, took delivery of the new Canyon, 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 the new Canyon Spectral on with a 900 watt hour battery. Um, and I, I put it in the scales, um, and it, it was just over 22 kilos. Okay. That's, <clears throat> that's pretty light. That is very light for for a bike with a nine hundred watt hour battery. Um, it does have EXO casing tires on it. Really? So okay. yep. So it, it's a trail bike, right? So that's kind of okay. But um, mm. yeah, I don't maybe. know if it we'll is. See. For those who aren't aware, EXO is um, Maxxis's effectively lightest, really weight uh, carcass uh, tire. Um, pretty yeah. skinny. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. thin, thin carcass. Um, so I've not started testing on that yet, but we shall see. Yeah. Okay. And you're you're pretty experienced with the old uh, e-bikes. You've just finished e-bike of the year. Um, and a little plug: this this podcast is going out on the second of May, uh, but do keep your ears peeled on the sixteenth of May for our bike of the year special podcast, where we're going to round up 
um, our whole bike of the testing with uh, with uh, us three because we're actually going to record it in a, in about half an hour's time. Um, so yeah, listen out for that because it's going to be a good one. Um, Luke, uh, so you you haven't done a bike of the year category. Um, not that I'm jealous in the slightest. Uh, but what have you been up to recently? What we've we been testing uh, and what have you got lined up? Yeah, so someone had to pick up the reins while you guys were all busy <laughs> sorting off doing your bike of the year, and uh, and I was yeah devastated. I had a uh, a trip to the Pyrenees I oh. had to go on, and a trip to Finale League oh, to, to uh, attend. So that was um, to test out the new Canyon Strive and the latest Santa Cruz Mega Tower. Nice. So I was I was thrown in it. Yeah, absolutely gutted. I had to do that while you guys were stuck in the UK in bike park Wales in out. the snow. <laughs> uh, here's the uh, here's the burning question about the new mega tower. What did you fit in its down tube storage compartment? Mm. We were in France, so it was full of baguettes, of course. Baguettes, yes, multiple no baguettes. Standard. I left them in there as well, so you know one's probably a bit stinky. <laughs> Amazing. That sounds good. Have you got anything fun coming up? Anything lined up? Um, so just been doing some sunglasses tests. Now the sunshine is coming out and the weather's getting better. So been doing some, yeah, eight pairs of sunglasses. So look out for those online and in the mag. Um, one of my bike tests has just moved a bit later in the year. I was going to be doing an enduro bike head to head, but, uh, that's kind of been postponed a little bit. So now just filling it in with uh, a few other bikes we've had come in that we haven't got around to testing yet. Uh, mm-hmm. the new Vitus Summit, uh, Mullet bike, the two nine seven, um, specialized stump jumper, and the score, score yeah, the enduro yeah. bikes. So, so there's a few bikes lined up that I look forward to riding. Nice, nice. That sounds all good. That sounds all uh, good. So, how, how are you, Tom? How are you? You've asked us how we are, but how are you? I, I know you've got some. You've got some big news oh. at the end of this week. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm very well. Uh, <laughs> I've just finished bike of the year as well. It's all gone off to the printers. It's gone. Uh, all the photos are sorted, pretty much. Uh, all the videos are shot, so that's real nice. And I've been basically picking up the pieces of every other little bit of work that I haven't yet completed because uh, by the end of tomorrow, that'll be me. That'll be me done. I'm off on sabbatical for 12 weeks. Uh, so by the time this podcast comes out, I will be somewhere in Spain on my uh, on my Lauf True Grip. Uh, never heard you talk about Never it. heard talking about that. Uh, Pedalling... Um, well, I don't really know where I'm going to pedal to, but well, I know where I'm going to be aiming for. I'm going to be aiming for Copenhagen um, on the European Divide bike packing route. Uh, I probably won't pedal all the way to Copenhagen because it turns out it's quite a long way from Barcelona. Uh, and I've got, given myself six weeks. Um, so hopefully northern Germany, um, maybe southern Denmark, and then some trains. Trains to Copenhagen and then maybe pop over to Malmo because uh, there's a tattooist there who I always wanted to tattoo me. Um, and he does a very nice little croissant uh, tattoo. <laughs> so maybe by the time I come back in the end of July, I'll have a little croissant penned onto my arm. Uh, but maybe Let's not. just hope Tom, Tom's mum and dad aren't listening. And if they are, I'm, <laughs> I'm really sorry for, you, for what's happened to your son. My, my parents, are, I love my parents to bits, uh, but they are fairly straight-laced. Um, I, my mother swore, I've, I've heard my mother swear once in my entire life. Uh, I was writing a university essay on sewage or sewage. And she she read through my essay and she's like, um, I can't much way around it is, but she's like, sewerage is like the system and sewage is shit, uh, or whatever whichever way around it was. And that's literally the only time in my thirty five years of life I've heard my mother swear. Um, so yeah, um, how we got onto that? I don't know. Uh, tattoos, yeah. Um, they once asked me, I was like, oh, have you got any tattoos? And I was very nonchalantly like, no, 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 but not yet. Uh, and they they didn't they didn't freak out. Okay, so that's a good sign for the croissant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we expect photos. We expect many photos of it, as long yeah. as it's not in a place where we don't want to see photos of. It, it won't be on, in my nether regions. It'll be on my arm. Uh, I'll, I'll post it. And, and yeah, I'll be, um, I'll be keeping everyone up to date with my little trip across Europe on my Instagram. Um, so you'll, you'll see where I am every day. Lovely. Right. Sounds amazing. Let's move on from that. It will be amazing. Uh, let's move on. So today... Um, quite a geeky topic today we uh, sometimes our chats are sort of fairly light-hearted and, and brief uh, and sometimes we do like to delve really deep into some high-tech tech um back when the podcast started myself and seb uh did a, a long-running series on mountain bike tech talks where we went uh, really nerdy on things like wheel sizes drivetrains suspension systems all that sort of stuff um but we didn't really talk about high pivot suspension uh, and today we thought we would 
go into that a little bit more because the past couple of years have seen some notable high pivot bikes being launched um, and they're quite interesting. Uh, now, Al and Luke, you've both ridden numerous high pivot bikes um, and I'll be honest, I haven't. Um, most of my testing is cross country and trail bikes with the occasional enduro bike, but there's not many trail bikes that come with high pivots. So actually, I'm not very experienced on this. So you're going to teach me all about high pivot bikes. So um, should we kick off? Luke, can you define what a high pivot bike is and some of its more, I guess, notable features? And then Al will talk to you about, yeah, about sure. why we do it. So with most bikes out there uh, that aren't high pivot bike, kind of this one of the main pivots that uh, connects the swing arm to the mainframe, it's kind of located around the top of the chain ring, mm-hmm. um, there or thereabouts. And high pivot bikes tend to elevate that position and have it further up the seat tube. Um, hence, it gets its name, high pivot. Um, that has a couple of effects on the on the suspension performance and especially the chain. And so you often see high pivot bikes with a chain idler as well that runs the chain up around or close to that pivot point um, to help take away some of the negative effects that placing that pivot there can have. Okay. Um, Al, why do we do this? Well, that's an interesting one. So Luke's, Luke's already already opened the debate. He's, he's, he's blown it wide open there by using the, the term negative effects mm. of a high pivot bike. And um, one of these is, is an increase in anti-squat. Anti-squat... Um, Oh dear, we're going to have to get very techy here. We we're going are, to have to go right. slow because yeah, yeah, okay. okay. So if I tell you what, let's let's try and let's try and just keep things a little bit quicker. If you want to find out what anti squat is exactly, head to Bike Radar because we have the ultimate guide to rear suspension systems mm. that explains all of these things in incredible succinct detail. Okay, so rather than me dribbling on for twenty five minutes trying to badly explain what anti squat <laughs> is, maybe read the the three line explanation on the website just to clear yourself up, because I think that's probably going to be much quicker and much easier. So high pivots, they have high anti-squat, they produce pedal kickback, and they can cause things like brake jack. Now, Luke said that these things are negative. And while a lot of people think they are, there's a lot of people who also think they're actually quite positive. Um, Now, why do these things happen? Well, these things happen because the chain length effectively grows as the suspension compresses. So that causes your anti-squat and it causes your pedal kickback. It doesn't cause your brake jack because that's something else, but it it causes those two things. And what happens is that because a, a high pivot has a rearward axle path, because of the pivot's location in relationship to the bike's axles, i.e. it's much higher than the bike's axles than a normal pivot system, the distance between the bottom bracket and the rear wheel axle grows as the suspension compresses. It actually gets longer because the rear wheel is is going backwards as it's arcing up through its travel. And basically, the reason for having an idler wheel, like Luke just described, is to help mitigate against some of these points. Because if you run the chain via the main pivot location, what you're actually doing is reducing the chances of the bike having a high anti-squat number and pedal kickback. And that's because while the distance between the BB and the axle might grow, the distance between the where the chain is effectively pulled and pulling doesn't really grow if it's pivot if the if the chain effectively pivots around the main pivot as well. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the, we're talking about upper chain chain line growth. So that's yeah. between the the cassette and and the chain ring rather than the derailleur and the chain ring. Yeah. So the lower chain line will always grow regardless of whether you've got an idler wheel or not. You can see that, you know, you, you compress the suspension and the derailleur cage kind of angles forward, right? It yeah. springs forward when Pulls the suspension compresses. Yeah, exactly. But if you have an idler wheel and run the chain over the idler wheel that's close to the main pivot, this chain growth doesn't happen. And therefore you don't get the massive chain growth which gives the kickback which leads to a, a sort of a harsher choppier ride over rough terrain can do and that kind of leads into i guess the actual main question is is why do we do this why do we want a, a rearward axle path 
So it's kind of to do with bump compliance, really, and to try and make the rear suspension um, perform as well as possible to keep the rear tyre in contact with the ground and to keep it as a, a, a bike as fast as possible, in theory. So it's kind of, it was more seen in, and is still more seen in downhill bikes, and especially gravity bikes, even though it's kind of filtered through to the Dura category. Um, and, and the theory goes that if the rear wheel moves backwards um, or more backwards, when it contacts a bump, it has a an easier path to move out of the way of the bump and thus mm-hmm. would be more supple and more efficient and give a, a, a smoother ride, um, better at maintaining momentum down the hill. Okay. And that's why we're having the higher pivots. So for a smoother ride, basically, smoother is faster, right? We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Cool. Okay. okay. Um, anything to add on that, Al? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of um, it's kind of an interesting one. So. You, you, you kind of, we're kind of like identifying high pivot bikes here, and you know I've I've recently done done some review. I actually did a feature. Here yeah, is a good plug. I did a feature where I compared a low pivot and a high pivot bike to to each other. The the low pivot bike was a, a single pivot orange, and the high pivot bike was a horse link style suspension system from uh, Norco Short. Now, um, if you plot the axle paths of these two bikes on a magnified um, graph, so the x-axis and the y-axis aren't the same scale, you can really magnify the path of the Norco's axle. And it looks crazy, like it does a massive arc, goes all the way back and finishes further back than its zero starting point. However, when you change these axes to have the same uh, reading, uh, you know, the, ver- the vertical and the horizontal axes, the minus 17 millimeters or whatever it is of, of axle path movement when it's not magnified is minimal. I mean, it's so insanely crazy small amount when you're not distorting the two axes. Um, and it kind of like made me ask the question, well, how much rearward axle path is enough? Mm-hmm. Now, clearly, I, I was able to feel that, you know, this bike had minus 17 millimetres or whatever it was of, of rearward axle movement because it was significantly smoother than the orange plus other bikes of a similar suspension design that I've been riding. But, you know, how much do you need? How much do you need and how much should you have? And what are the manufacturers saying? You know, I mean, you get like, um, I pick on Specialized here because it's the first one that springs to, springs to my head, but their, their Turbo Levo. The newest one, it, it it has a in the marketing bit there. It has the magnified axle path, and it basically says the first three quarters or quarter, uh, sorry, the first half of its travel has a rearward axle path, and you can see the little graph there. Mm. Um, but in fact, it's just a standard low pivot bike, and most low pivot bikes actually do have a slightly rearward axle path through the first part of their travel because you're simply drawing a circle. It's like you know, it's like a, a, a suspension system is like a, a protractor. And it just depends where you are on the circle when you're drawing drawing it with a with a compass and a protractor. Sorry, mm-hmm. that's what I meant to say. Um, so, how much is enough, and how much do you feel? Well, clearly the Norco Shores seventeen millimeters or whatever it was was enough to feel, but is it actually a true high pivot system? You know, its entire axle path isn't rearward; it does begin to arc forward towards the end of its travel. Um, you know, it's kind of like it's a bit of a it's a bit of a minefield, really. And you've got all these claims for people saying, "Oh, you know, high pivots better this, it's better that." But how much better is it? And surely there must be other things that mm. are just as important. Yeah, they, they, it, so can't, it's, it can't be like a complete no. So again, there's got there's got to be at some point. You know, as, as we sort of have vaguely touched on, and we'll talk about there's costs involved with with all that. Luke, what were you gonna? I was I was gonna say yeah, like. To your point, that obviously everything is a compromise. Hey, no matter what mm. system you use, there's going to be pros and cons of it. 
Um, you mentioned Al, the Norco had about 17 millimeters rearward um, travel, I guess, before arcing forwards a little bit. Do you know off the top of your head what the orange had? Uh, not off the top of my head, no. Thank you for that one, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> I really That's all right. I was that. just, I was just, uh, just curious because, uh, I mean, if you if you take that seventeen mil of travel and um, divide it against like the wheelbase of the bike, so if you say a standard, maybe medium frame Norco short, I don't know what the wheelbase is, but if you made it up to be like twelve hundred and fifty millimeters, for example, then. Again, it's roughly about 1.3% of that distance to wheels moving backwards. But if the if the orange, for example, in the first part of its travel had five millimeters of rearward axle path before it moved forwards an X amount. I was just wondering what the actual percentage differences are between them, like you're saying, like how small a percentage difference can you change or can you feel, if you know what I mean? And uh, and, and and how much do we think it affects the bike to how much it really does affect the bike, if you know what I mean? Yeah, and that's really interesting because it kind of comes on to all of these mid-pivot bikes that, you know, we've been seeing from the likes of um, GT with the new with the new Force from the Cannondale Jekyll, um, the Da Vinci Spartan, um, to name to name just a few. And, you know, the, the, they are high pivots in that their pivots are higher than a low-pivot bike. But they're not high pivots in the same way that um, the the Norco uh, range is, for example, you know, or the Aram HSP downhill bike, which has a truly entirely rearward axle path. Is it? Yep. That must be yeah. one of very few, though, that does. I think. Yeah, I think. I think it is a it is a smaller number for sure. Yeah, yeah. because. <clears throat> are these are these negative effects that you know Luke was talking about earlier that you know that they're, they're perceived to to not necessarily mm. um, be as advantageous and they require quite a lot of circum circumvention circumnavigation maybe we're going around the globe uh, circumventing the problems yeah let's um, let's talk about sort of pros and cons and, and things that you know, in a bit more detail, we, we've talked about some of the pros here. The, the main one being that a rearward axle path, which is what we've just spent the last five minutes talking about, gives a smoother, better bump absorption. You know, and as I said, you know, smoother is faster, smoother is more comfortable, smoother keeps you in more control. And so in theory, it sounds like these are great ideas, especially uh, for a bike designed to go fast downhill. So downhill bikes and enduro bikes. We don't see so many high pivot trail bikes and we haven't seen any high pivot cross country bikes. And that's because there are some significant downsides. Um, we talked quite a lot about this uh, rear axle path with its uh, 15 mil of, of growth. So obviously the geometry of the bike changes as the bike travels through its travel, or moves through its travel. So let's, let's talk about geometry changes first as, as one of the big problems. I know this is something that both of you picked up on in reviews of the bikes. So uh, Al, I can see you're chomping chomping at the bit to talk about geometry changes yeah i love this one this is this is really interesting and it's one of the things that a lot of people talk about with high pivots and it's one of the first things that people talk mm. about because <clears throat> you know clearly when when you've got this mo- rearward axle movement the the chain stays the effective chain stays are, are getting longer right and on a normal bike with a slightly more vertical or slightly forward axle path the chainstays are either aren't getting longer or they're getting ever so slightly shorter. But what a lot of people forget to do is to think of this in the context of the front wheel. Now, you know, imagine you've got your head angle of your bike, which is 64 degrees or whatever it is, and your fork's actually quite an extreme angle. Mm. And as your fork compresses, your front wheel actually has quite a significant amount of rearward axle travel because it goes up on a, on a single plane you know, rearward, a slightly horizontal angle, whatever the angle is. Um, And in theory, the more rearward your rear axle, your rear wheel's axle path is, as much as it can match the front one, you're actually maintaining your bike's geometry more than you would be on another bike, assuming that both wheels are compressing at the same time in a relatively even amount. Sure. And, um, you know... Go, go, go on, Luke. Yeah, let's have you. Let's I was, have you. I was, I was going to uh, interrupt. And do you think that maintaining the wheelbase by having both the front wheel and the rear wheel move 
as parallel as they can is better. Okay, so then the other point is that um, because if both wheels move parallel rearwards, the bottom bracket and the handlebars don't change position. So the rider's weight, in theory, is stationary, even though we do move around the bike, but let's simplify it. Those two points are fixed. And so when you compress through the travel on those bikes, the rider's centre of gravity, in theory, shifts forwards with each compression, which is then disrupting their balance between the wheels. Now, is that more of a problem than having the front wheel move backwards, the rear wheel move up and forwards, which shortens the wheelbase, but then doesn't affect the rider's centre of gravity or position between those wheels as much? which is a more stable dynamic system and, yeah, it's, uh, and it's, it is yeah it's a really tricky one to answer right and it's it, uh, you know we kind of like we spend our lives within the bike industry asking for more mid-stroke support as one of our favorite phrases to write in a review um, and that says to me okay so what we're trying to do is preserve our bike's geometry now you know pff, does a high pivot bike do that? I, I, I don't know. You know, I mean, it's... Oh, God. Head's, head's blowing here. It sounds like that's a bit of a, an unanswered question. And, and yeah, I, I was going to ask about sort of the ratio of front end to rear end length changes and how this... Because certainly people say that, you know, when you're going into, say, like a, a berm or something like that, a loaded corner and the, the back end extends with a high pivot it really sort of changes the handling characteristics of a bike. You know, it's noticeable between the two bikes as to how they feel different um, when you're dropping into into that travel. I guess the, the flip side of that is, say you're rattling down something steep and fast and you're you're extending that wheelbase or that rear centre length, that adds stability, but does it change? It will then change the cornering dynamics of the bike as well when you're getting deeper into the travel, maybe on more technical, faster, harder terrain. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it does. It's it's a really interesting thought experiment. Um, and, and then to circle back to what we were talking about earlier, is the 15 millimetres of, or 17 or whatever it is, of rearward axle travel that actually begins to arc forward again, the deeper into the travel that it gets, enough to have such a big effect on the bike when you compare it to the front wheel. So, you know, we were talking about the wheels moving parallel to one another on their slightly off vertical plane, which is effectively shifting your center of gravity forwards because your wheels are moving backwards, but your handlebars and bottom bracket aren't. But if it's only by 17 millimeters and that only happens through the first 70% of the travel, when then it returns to actually going back towards forwards again, Mm. is it it enough? You know, is is it enough? (laughs) I I don't know. I mean, you know, I've just tested like, eight bikes like you tom and you know that they've all got reach numbers from somewhere between four six seven and some of them up to 500 and i don't really notice a massive 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 difference there are differences you can notice when you swap between the bikes back to back and you take the shortest and the most extreme but if they're all within a certain amount of each other you're not noticing a huge amount and i suspect that maybe that theory can be applied to almost anything in in bikes we're always talking about these marginal differences all the time. And yeah, as you say, does half a degree here or five mil there or two mil there really, you know, how much of a difference does it really make? I think later on towards the end of the podcast, actually, I'm going to ask you both. Um, we've talked about like some quite theoretical stuff here. You know, we haven't really delved into how it actually feels. So we'll talk about that towards the end. I do want to touch on a few more of these potential um, downsides. Uh, and I'll ask you about sort of the extra complications, you know, train drag, idler wheels and all that sort of stuff. But one of the things I did want to ask was I was chatting to a friend about high pivots a year or two ago. Must have uh, been an amazing conversation. It was, it was. It was an interesting one. And uh, he had been chatting to, I, I, I want to say it was Adrian Pace, but I could be wrong, so I don't want to sort of quote anyone on that. And he sort of said, if you take a bit of corrugated paper, okay, like, or a bit of corrugated card or or whatever it is, and and drag a pencil along it, you know, hold the top of the pencil and, and like, drag it along, and it'll go bum, 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 bum. If you pull that sort of your effective pivot higher, which is reflecting maybe, I don't know, a higher pivot bike, 
he said, well, first off, it's not necessarily always going to be smoother, but it is a little bit because you have a bit more root. But what happens on, on the rebound? When, when you know, if, if we're sort of talking about it gets out of the way easier, when it comes back, it's going to slap into those bumps harder, is it? You know, the thought experiment would suggest. Is that a reality or is that something we ignore because it's convenient that we like high pivots because they're new and they're fresh and they're interesting or it's not, not something people talk about? Luke? I think I think it's perfectly valid if the rear suspension is going to move one direction out of the way better, in theory, when it returns on that same arc, but the opposite direction is going to hit into the next bump, mm. you know, do you think the wrong angle as such. So, Do you think we um, talk about it more because it's easier for the average person to feel a change in sort of impact getting out of the way and you can feel, you know, people have more of an understanding of how compression damping works and how you can adjust it and how it feels. Whereas it always feels that rebound is sort of almost the, the forgotten cousin that we don't really talk about how rebound impacts the, the handling of a bike. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, suspension, you always think of it, how well is this going to compress through its travel? Mm. That I, I think is, um, yeah, what most people think about and, and not often about, okay, the the return phase of the suspension and, and people set that up to whatever they find comfortable or, or, or safe for them. You know I mean, it, it doesn't get as much attention and, um, and perhaps it should because, you know, it's one of the, yeah, it's equally as important, you know, in how your bike behaves and rides on the trail is mm. it's the rebound part of it as well and how it can uh, extend back to full travel. And if the suspension design limits that, then of course there's going to be flaws in the bike, no matter how well the rear wheel might move out of the way. If it can't get back to a starting place, or if it does, it feels harsher, mm. um, and that can limit performance as well. Okay, Al, there's a, yeah, this is interesting. So I've I've heard down the uh, mountain bike grapevine that basically people are running their high pivot bikes with slower than usual rebound settings. So with more rebound damping in order to slow down the rear wheels forward impact into the next bump. Um, So that's kind of an interesting one because although rebound, you know, most people set it to taste, there's, there's some pretty strong arguments to say that you need to be able to run it as fast as you possibly can. Mm. Um, in order to maintain the rear wheel or the front wheel for that matter, the wheels contact with the floor. The more time that it's in contact with the floor, the more grip and control you've got. So compression is one part of that and rebound is the other. Um, so, you know, it, it's interesting. It's interesting that, um, that that you bring that up because it's a really valid point and it's definitely something that people don't really think about. Mm. Um, yeah, another theory is that people are running their... Um, their high pivot bikes a bit harder, um, which is actually kind of opposite to the way that you'd, you'd think you'd almost want it. You know, you want it to be super plush, super luxurious. But what you're effectively doing is then gobbling up all of that amazing rearward axle travel um, too easily and too quickly. And what you want it to do is, is to prop up into its travel a little bit more so that you use the rearward portion of it more than you use the other portion of the travel you know, the, the less rearward or the more vertical or whatever you want to call it as it gets deeper. Um, so, you know, maybe there's maybe there's two things there that people can do with high pivot bikes is potentially try running their rebound a little slower and maybe just try running them a little harder. But I don't know. You know, I don't know. That's a, it's more of a question than a, than a statement. So, Okay. Well, let's, let's move on from, um, you know, axle paths and where the wheels move in and all that sort of jazz. Uh, let's talk about some of the other obvious uh, extra complications, uh, as you've written down in our little meeting notes. Um, so train drag, idler wheels, chain length, chain wrap, and chain growth. Well, we've talked about chain growth, so let's not talk about that. But yeah, like the the, the mechanical, physical um, impacts on, on yeah, your drag train. So chain drag is obviously a big one. You've got a chain ring, you've got your cassette, you've got your jockey wheels, and we're adding an idler wheel into the whole system, which is another thing that, you know, is going to have to have bearings, it's going to have teeth to chain interfaces, and it's going to another place for mud to collect uh, and clog up. What are your experiences um, uh, and sort of thoughts on those, Al? So experientially, um, I can definitely feel extra drag 
mm-hmm. like as like a psychologically based thing. But whether or not there is actually extra drag uh, isn't something that I was able to answer. Um, <clears throat> you know, you, you can feel it because there's extra teeth and, you know, when it gets dry or has no oil or is dirty, it feels rough to pedal. Like you can feel it kind of like when a narrow wide chain ring is sucking the chain. That, that's how it feels with uh, many high pivot systems. But whether or not that actually leads to a decrease in efficiency, um, it's not something that I can currently answer. I know that uh, an esteemed ex-colleague did did actually do the the maths behind this um, on another website, uh, Pink Bike, Seb. Uh, and the, the Seb. There you go, just to drop everyone's names. Um, um, and he, he basically found that no, there wasn't there wasn't really any any losses. Did he say about um, two two percent? One or two percent. Yeah, which was within the the margin for error sti- for the yeah, yeah exactly statistically it w- insignificant. Wasn't, wasn't statistically significant so and gone loop. Sorry to interrupt there. There's there's one thing um, on the few bikes I've had. Easy test because um, you say you, it's hard to notice when you're pedaling along and and whatnot. But if you do the um, back pedal test, so normally on a um, on a standard dry chain bike, if you've got the chain in the middle of the cassette so it's kind of lined up well with the chain ring and you spin the cranks backwards you know hopefully you can if it's not too dirty misaligned or whatever then you can get your cranks to rotate a couple of times two or three Mm. times before the friction stops the system the high pivot bikes i've tested on this it will rotate half a half a turn as such half a turn three quarters of a turn it's not as free to rotate and and I mean that's no scientific experiment, but it's um it's it's something to notice, you know, it doesn't backpedal as freely. And it's surprising how much one uh additional jockey wheel changes it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But, um, that, that's but definitely is... in, indicative, isn't it? It's indicative of, of something. And like you say, it might not be scientific, but when you then factor in like tension under the chain and dirt and then potentially like angles as the chain's coming across the drivetrain. You know, maybe it would be safe to assume that actually there is maybe a bit more drag. Okay. And what about um, the chainring wrap? Uh, so that's how much the how much uh, how much of the chainring is engaging with the chain. Like, it's it's decreased to roughly so every quarter of the chainring, I guess, because obviously it comes off the bottom of the chainring and then yeah, pretty much goes off from uh, from three o'clock. So it's engaged from like three o'clock to six o'clock, but that's about it. I mean, I, personally, I don't, you know, in my head, I don't think it's going to make a huge amount of difference. Is, is it a problem? It's, <clears throat> I'd say it's only a problem for um, chain and chain ring wear mm-hmm. because you're, you're focusing all of that pressure via, you know, on a smaller, okay. smaller part per rotation. Um, a lot of brands do actually put a lower uh, chain device on the, on the bike to wrap the chain further around the chain ring. Um, and this does two things. It increases chain wrap, but it also reduces the amount the rear derailleur has to flex forward as the suspension compresses because you've already got, you know, it's bringing the chain closer to the pivot, mm. basically. Um, that's kind of what it's doing. Um, but from a from a um, efficiency perspective, I, I mean, I don't think it's making any difference at all. Okay. And in terms of sort of chain length as well, obviously the chain's going to have to go up and over. Now I recently changed uh, a chain on a bike. Uh, it was a it was a gravel bike, but I'm using a mountain bike chain for reasons that I can't be bothered to go into. Um, and <laughs> I think I took like six or seven links out of the chain. It's a standard uh, XO1 chain. Big, big got, spender, <laughs> just saying. Was oh, that yeah. on the expenses or? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Dropped, dropped an email to Sram. Uh, it was in my toolbox. It was in my toolbox. Um, if I've got a high pivot bike and I want to swap a chain, I'm going to have to go and buy two chains. And chains chains aren't cheap. Is that is that the, what you found, Luke? Uh, yeah, with some of them for sure. I think I'm trying to. One of the brands I've used has said they is pretty much a full length chain, 126 links. Uh-huh. And another one has said you will need two chains, and uh, the second chain you just need a few links from, and you can keep that in your spare parts bit, and just keep taking links from that each time you replace mm. the chain to to make up the length. So potentially there is an outlay for for two chains. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, okay. Well, that, that's we've talked about sort of the downsides. Um, one thing we haven't really talked about is, well, your experiences of them. So let's go through maybe some of the bikes that you've ridden that are high pivots uh, and maybe give us a few thoughts on, you know, some of those specific bikes. Uh, Al, uh, you've, I've got down here that you've ridden the Da Vinci Spartan, the Noco Shore, the Empire P1, and the Balfour BB7. Is that right? Yeah, uh, but plus quite quite a few more. But those are like the the key ones. The, the, the most recent, plus also the the standout ones, and the Balfour BB7 is a bit of a, a TBT throwback throwback Thursday, mm. which is actually today. Just saying, so um, <laughs> that's very very good, very good hashtag. Um, this was this was actually the first high pivot bike that I rode way back in I want to say two thousand and I can't remember two thousand mm. and something, um, <clears throat> and honestly it was it was mind blowing. I mean yeah. it was really 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 good, and it, it was a true high pivot bike as well. It wasn't a mid pivot bike like the pivot was really high. You needed to use a chain and a half back in the day. Um, you know it, it was it was a lot of high pivot and it was smooth it was fast it was quiet had loads of grip easy to control and it was the same for the empire ap1 you know that that was more of a mid mid pivot bike it, it, you know it was slightly lower but my god the amount of grip you get is is ridiculous mm. once again same thing with the norco shore that bike blew me away i mean i i gave it five stars you did i did give it five five stars which is pretty bonkers um given the amount of bikes that we get to ride and the quality at the minute of the bikes that are out there. Um, the Da Vinci Spartan was a bit closer to a normal bike in the way that it rode, but it definitely had like a, definitely had like the, the, the little buds of high pivot to it. You mm. know, it's, it's a, it's a mid pivot to low mid pivot bike. Um, but it, it was really good as well. Um, and it, I don't know. I, I didn't have any problems with them. I didn't. I didn't feel they were weird or bizarre or required an adapt real significant adaptation in my riding style. Um, yeah, de- definitely go for it. Go Did, for it. So you found that there was generally smoother, loads of grip, better compliance. Did, what about when you were climbing? You know, do they do they pump as well through rolling terrain? Do they feel a bit rubbish when you're winching up somewhat steep? Or what about on fire roads? Um, winching up something steep, a complete opposite. The grip was bonkers. Like it was so much better on the Norco Shore, quite specifically. Actually, there was like a standout moment, and it was this really technical rooty section that was dead steep. I was in first gear, slogging my brains out, and I was just looking down at the suspension, and it was tracking the ground like no one's business, mm. even in first gear. So you know they've obviously got their pivot placement spot on to reduce kickback and to make anti squat probably sit almost exactly around hundred percent. Um, the Da Vinci Spartan was really sensitive to how clean and well oiled the chain was. Um, I definitely felt that it was harder to pedal, you know, once it was once it was dirty. Mm. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, did I really struggle to pedal them? Absolutely not. No, no, mm-hmm. I was quite comfortable doing all day rides on both of those bikes. Um, okay, I mean, you are a bit of an animal, but um, Luke, how about you? Uh, what which bikes have you been riding that have uh, got a high pivot, and how have you found them? Um, on yeah climbs i am interested in sort of like trail centery smoother rolling terrain as well because i think a lot of people do ride that uh and yeah it gives you impressions Luke. yeah so i uh i've, I've tested the dva highlander in the mm-hmm. 140 mil setting or the 140 mil version of it um the forbidden dreadnought Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a 150. That's an enduro bike. And then kind of, and both of those are quite high pivot bikes. What you yeah. say, probably truly high pivots. And then I tested the Trek Session, which you would call more of a mid-high pivot. So that has a kind of, yeah, rearward axle path that mitigates or migrates 12 mil backwards and then to zero again. So um, it was interesting. I talk about the Dreadnought first. Um, and I did more back-to-back testing with that against my long-term bike, which is a Cube Stereo 170, another enduro bike. Um, which has a traditional, normal, which normally is a traditional four-bar link. It's horse link, yeah, um, normal place. So. And uh, more so, I thought that the extra travel adds more sensitivity and plushness than the rearward axle path. So I was I was expecting probably that the Dreadnought to outperform um the suspension on the cube just with its uh yeah its high pivot placement um but i found it 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 probably didn't i think what was more plush and more comfortable was actually 
was actually the cube with its extra 20 mil of travel. Mm-hmm. Um, so that took me by surprise a little bit. I wasn't expecting that, but it was interesting to interesting to find out. Um, there's certain places uh, on the dreadnought that was really good. So there's if you get it in the right place around flat corners, like the grip is is excellent. You know, those I think those high pivot bikes do provide plenty of grip and and stability, especially in flat turns. Um, but yeah, I, the I mean, they have, so the Dreadnought has a slightly different idler location compared to the pivot point, so they don't overlap fully, which has allowed them to um, increase the uh, anti-squad a little bit that helps its pedaling. So it adds a bit more playfulness to the bike as such, but Mm -hmm. it also will then um, make the bike, yeah, not as supple as it perhaps could be. Um, It's it's not wildly different, but they've they've added this in to to kind of, yeah, not make it too wallowy and too such, so... Can say okay. they've succeeded there but um so climbing wise that bike yeah climbed fine um again it's one of those things compared to an enduro bike like the the cube i was putting it against very little to tell you know i winch up the climbs at my own pace not really trying to race to the top if you know what i mean that's not what those bikes are for um and performance wise it was yeah it performed adequately you know that i've possibly think the geometry is is more important there than enduro bikes um suspension settings because you can always just put the climb lever on the shock if it's got one and firm up the rear settings anyway technical climbing yeah i i i don't think maybe the uh the dreadnought is quite as supple as al's described his norco shore um but yeah it 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 it, ha- it yeah it does i won't say soak up the trails but it it just gives a nice stable platform to pedal on. You're, you're not getting bounced around or you don't feel you're getting like pushed up over the route and then squatting back down using the travel. I guess your saddle stays pretty level and um and the rear suspension does the work. So I guess that's what mm. it's 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 doing well. Um there's definitely there's definitely something interesting to be said there for um suspension setup and tuning over sorry, damper setup and tuning over changing your suspension system entirely. Um, I think there's a lot more gains to be had from from a well set up rear shock or fork and tuned damper than there is completely rethinking your bike suspension design you mm. know, and, and maybe thinking that's what the problem is and, and even looking to buy a new bike. We'll move on towards the the last portion of of this podcast now. Um, and I guess my last question for you both is: you, you've you've left the good ship. MBUK and bike radar. You've you've gone uh, worked for a. You're going to go and work for a, a bike brand, and they've come to you as as a product manager, and they said, uh, Al and Luke, we need a new enduro bike. You get to sort of design, you know, the geometry, the, the kit, and all this sort of stuff, and the suspension, how it's going to act. Are you going to make your next enduro bike a high pivot bike, or are you going to stick with a normal pivot location? Is it worth it, Al? <laughs> Blimey, what a question. I, firstly, I want to know what my salary is, how many days annual leave a year I get. And, uh, uh, you get a salary of... Uh, product managers are going to get paid reasonably well. I'm going to give you a 60k salary. Uh, okay. You're going to get 28 days annual leave plus bank holidays because I'm a generous person, good pension okay. and private health insurance. Blimey. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's definitely changed my opinion. Okay. So I'm glad I'm glad we got that information out there. Um, would no no? Do you know what? No, I, I probably wouldn't. Um, I mean, arguably, they're better in a lot of scenarios. But would I make my bike or all of our bikes or whatever brand it is that's paying me sixty grand a year plus twenty eight days holiday plus bank holidays plus private healthcare? high pivots no I, I wouldn't I would I would really really focus on suspension tuning um, and and really tweaking the designs that the brand currently has without trying to reinvent anything mm-hmm. I think that you know while high pivots are great and they're amazing in certain scenarios um, I'm not sure not sure it's worth it um, Commencel being an interesting example of that with their supreme downhill bikes um, went from being low pivot to really high pivot. And now actually what they've done is they've lowered the pivot on their most recent iteration. Mm. And it's now a, a mid-low pivot bike. Um, and they've just moved the idler wheel. 
to a completely different location to tune anti-squat and to tune the suspension, um, you know, which isn't necessarily something that I would do, but I think that maybe my focus would be on damper and suspension tuning rather than re redesigning the system. Okay. Luke, same remuneration package. Would you go high pivot? I wouldn't, no. I would I would stick to a yeah, traditional four bar linkage probably. I think mm-hmm. you can get everything you need out of uh, out of that system and, and, and keep it more simple with less moving parts and I think like Al said focusing on a very good shock tune for the kinematics you've chosen is probably more important than um, trying to make something yeah that is only significantly or only marginally better in certain situations um having just tested say two of the the newest released enduro bikes to come out the, the canyon strive and the and the mega tower um i don't think i could ride a bike faster with a high pivot if you know what i mean they were yeah. they were well beyond my capabilities of going fast and i'm sure probably 90 percent of of people's capabilities um yes i think it's uh i i don't think it's necessarily overall better for everyone um mm-hmm. okay yeah okay well i think we we set off that this podcast is called uh, what is a high pivot bike and are they better uh, and i think we've we've answered both questions what is a high pivot bike we've talked about that and are they better well Neither of you guys have put them on your own bike, so I think that's a, not a resounding no, but a, a, yeah, 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 they're good, but yeah. Is that fair? Um, yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, cool. And most importantly, we also know what kind of salary we're both looking for, uh, plus <laughs> also other forms of uh, remuneration and benefits. Equal to what we're on now, Al. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry, right, yeah, 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 la, 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 la. Great. Well, um, thank you very much, Alan. Luke. That's really appreciated. Um, your insights have been really interesting. So hopefully um, our listeners now are a little bit more equipped when they come to look at their next uh, bike. Um, and yeah, thank you very much for listening. Um, there are lots of pre and post bits and pieces that go get plugged automatically onto the start and end of our podcast, reminding you to subscribe, reminding you to leave uh, ratings and comments. Um, so please do so. Thanks very much for listening and goodbye for now. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar Podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 